This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. Today on Simple But Not Easy, we're taking a closer look at the recent U.S. stock rally from its March low and addressing some questions frequently asked by advisors around assessing risk and behavioral coaching in these unusual times. Joining me today via a previously recorded webcast are Daniel Needham, President and Global Chief Investment Officer, and Ryan Murphy, Head of Decision Sciences at Morningstar Investment Management. Daniel, markets had one of their best months on record in April, yet we continue to see dire economic data coming out. So will this rebound hold, or is the worst yet to come in terms of market declines? You know, look, these are questions, as, as you mentioned, we've, we've had uh, in various forms from uh, advisors and clients, and, and look, they're good questions. Um, they're ones that uh, might not have uh, clear-cut answers for those that want certainty. Um, but, uh, you know, there's really three elements that are kind of embedded in that question that I, I want to address. And you know, firstly is um, we don't know what the market's going to do in the short term. Uh, and um, this means that you've got to be prepared to see lots of different things, including what's happened since uh, the uh, 23rd of March sort of bottom. Um, and so, to be surprised by markets implies a level of confidence in one's expectations about what should happen. And so if we don't know what's going to happen in the markets in the short term, then we really should be, shouldn't be surprised as often as we are. So, you know, history has shown, you know, over the long term that uh, eventually big sell-offs and, and market corrections uh, are followed by recoveries and that the general direction of stocks is up, but it's, it's always very uncertain in the, in the short term. Secondly, embedded in there is this idea that that the economy should be driving the market. But as Bill Miller, who's a sort of famous value investor, has pointed out, that markets tend to predict the economy rather than the economy predicting the markets. That is, markets are forward-looking. And this is, explains why generally what you see is that markets will tend to re- rebound or recover before a recession's over. Um, but it doesn't mean that the markets are right per se, but it means that don't expect the economy to be driving markets. Um, have we seen the low uh, following um, the COVID-19 impact? We, we don't know. We don't think anybody knows the answer to that question. However, we do think that buying assets that are attractively priced and holding for the long term means that you don't have to worry about those short-term predictions. And the third point is when people sort of mention the market, they don't always define what they mean by the market. And it's actually pretty tricky in this environment because, you know, there, there's a wide divergence of performance of the performance of companies in the stock market. And depending on how you define the market, you can get quite different outcomes. That last point is interesting, Daniel. What do you mean by the market? Could you maybe expand on that a bit? Sure. I mean, the idea of the market is, is, is kind of a tricky one because theoretically you have to define, are we talking public markets or private markets? Um, and generally what people will do is they'll be referring to a subset of the market. And so right now, most people are referring to the S&P 500. That's probably the most commonly quoted index uh, that, that the news and, you know, the media and investors will refer to. And that kind of, at the moment, is really dominated by uh, large cap, large capitalization, really big companies. Uh, and, and many of those companies are doing well in a sort of work from home and environment or internet-related 
businesses that are less dependent on the sort of bricks and mortar. Um, and what you can see is that actually, firstly, there's a very wide spread uh, between the indexes uh, and, um, and, and small value has lagged large growth by very wide margins. Um, NASDAQ, as I mentioned, has performed well, pretty close to the growth index. And the S&P 500 is, more clo- is closer to that growth index. And really, the headline number doesn't tell the story of what's happening underneath the index. And as I mentioned, outside of those businesses that are geared towards work from home, internet-based businesses, businesses that are defensive, so the demand for their products is less sensitive to the economic cycle. So think um, you know, consumer sta- staples products, cleaning products, things like that. A global-oriented firm. So think about the, the businesses that sort of provide services globally. So, you know, Google's, Google's got a huge global business and they've got strong balance sheets. So businesses that have got strong balance sheets have, have done well. But everything else outside of those has actually been under a lot of pressure. And, um, and if you kind of look at that segment of the market, you would say that things aren't going as well. And I'd say outside of those, those businesses that have those attributes I mentioned, uh, companies like energy, uh, energy companies, banks, you know they're they're under they're, they're, they have not performed anywhere near as well, and then also airlines, hotels, cruise lines. I mean they're priced for disaster. I mean those have fallen significantly. So there's definitely been some really big differences, and so it kind of harks back to this concept, something that's referred to as the floor of averages. So we think what we're seeing in markets right now is the floor of averages. It's hard to draw conclusions about the opportunity set by looking at the market. Um, when you add market capitalization weighting. What that means is each stock in the index is weighted by the size of it, its shares multiplied by the market price or its market cap. So bigger companies have a bigger weight. So what we're seeing is kind of the floor of averages on steroids. Um, so this looks at five stocks in the S&P 500. So Facebook, Amazon, Google, or it's Alphabet, but, but effectively Google, Apple, and Microsoft. Uh, and these are effectively five individual companies that represent nearly 20% of the market at the moment. Um, Now, I would say these five businesses pretty much benefit from those themes I mentioned. They've all got strong balance sheets. Generally, they're they're global businesses. Um, They've benefited. Well, they haven't been hurt from a work-from-home environment. They're generally internet-related. And one interesting attribute is that despite many of them being cyclical, for example, Google and Facebook being advertising businesses, they're actually be, the market's treating them more like defensives than cyclicals. So they kind of tick quite a lot of those boxes uh, that I mentioned of businesses that are doing well. And so what we see is that, uh, that um, the market has held up really well, the S&P 500, because of these handful of stocks. And this kind of narrow leadership is both rare in occurrence uh, and, uh, and if you look at it uh, pr- uh, sort of prospectively, after leadership like that, the leadership is rarely maintained. And so what we mean by that is that those five stocks that dominate the market rarely stay, uh, rarely, rarely maintain their size of the market and, and, and maintain their leadership. Um, so, you know, we think, you know, it's not necessarily a satisfactory answer of, um, of uh, whether we think the S&P 500 has bottomed or, you know, whether we're going to have another leg down. Um, but, um, but we, what we would say is that we think the market right now is facing a wide range of possible economic outcomes with more uncertainty than usual. The future is always uncertain, but there is a very wide range of outcomes. The range of health outcomes has probably narrowed quite a lot relative to, say, February, but the range of possible economic outcomes is still wide. 
And I think if you spoke to most investors, they'd say that their guesses have a wider range than normal. And so when we think about markets as sort of uh, 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 sort of pricing mechanisms that are governed by the wisdom of crowds. So the wisdom of crowds says that you have a large group of people that try to guess something. The, the accuracy of the crowd is dependent on the individual accuracy of the participants and the difference is in the guesses of each of the participants. So the, the more talented a group and the more different they are or the more cognitively diverse they are, then theoretically the more accurate their guesses are. And so if individual investors or, you know, uh, sort of, let's say, talented investors have a wide range, wider range than normal, then you could make the case that the average accuracy is actually down quite a lot. And so this means, in our view, that the, the market's accuracy may be hindered in this environment. So uh, using the wisdom of crowds metaphor, you know, maybe the market has lost a few IQ points in its ability to predict what the price should be. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, so given your views on the apparent rebound, where do you think opportunities lie for multi-asset portfolios? Sure. I mean, firstly, we would say that for those businesses that, you know, they're publicly traded stock prices that are sort of at or above the end of January 2020 levels, uh, I think one has to wonder whether their businesses are better now um, given what's happened with COVID-19. And, and, and whilst you can see some potential consumer behaviour changes or corporate spending pattern changes you know, I mean, they don't seem to be reflecting any negative outcome at the moment. Um, and so Marcus is, is sceptical of those businesses that are, that are up a lot from the beginning of the year, um, but there's still select opportunities. And so one good way of looking at where we, the fact that there may be the aggregate market doesn't look that attractive, but there are pockets underneath can be to look at the, the US market by size, so large, mid and small cap, and by style, so growth and value. But the interesting thing that we we look at is that the spread between, say, small value stocks and large growth stocks is very wide. So the smallest companies in the US, those that are maybe the more cyclical businesses, more capital intensive, you know, um, uh, generally kind of uh, out of favour, that they fit more in that small value camp. And so the prospective return at the moment, based off our research, is about 8% after adjusting for inflation, whereas large growth, given the fact that many of those companies have actually gone up this year, is actually less attractive. And so the gap between those two is quite large, actually one of the largest spreads that we've, that we've seen. And so, so we think small value or value relative to growth looks much, much more attractive now, pretty much than we've ever seen um, in, in our research. And so, so from a sort of a forward-looking basis, we still see lots of relative opportunity in the market, even if the aggregate market doesn't look as attractive. But there's also a very wide spread at the, at the industry level. So you can see that energy and financials, um, because their prices haven't, their, their prices fell more than other parts of the market and investors are more concerned about the economic cycle, uh, oil stocks and banks have been under pressure. We think looking prospectively, the reward for risk is quite attractive. And so therefore, uh, we think uh, energy and financial say versus IT uh, is a better place to be longer term, and that's what's reflected in our multi-asset portfolios. And so what you'll see in our multi-asset portfolios is that we're going to be shifting away from US large cap growth towards sort of value and also small value. We're going to be shifting away from information technology towards more energy and banks and the, the, the more attractively priced part of the markets, but certainly potentially the less popular parts of the market. 
and shifting away from the US towards international stocks, especially the United Kingdom, Japan, and emerging markets. And so, in our opinion, your know, market timing is not possible. However, prospectively, you know, we think the returns for value stocks and international stocks in US dollars look attractive over the long term. And that's how we're responding to this investment. And so, we think the opportunity set now is more attractive than it was at the beginning of the year. And we think if you look below the surface, you can see some relatively attractive parts of the market. And so we still think it's a, it's a good time to be a long-term valuation-driven investor. And, um, and, and so from our perspective, we still think it makes sense to save and invest, of course. Um, um, this doesn't mean that we can't retest the lows or see more extreme volatility. Longer term, we're constructive. But again, we don't know what's going to happen in the short term. We position the portfolios to be able to take advantage of both the long-term opportunity and better prices if they come along. So if we retest the lows, then you know we've got portfolios that can withstand that and take advantage of it by deploying more more capital into those parts of the market. You know we think saving and investing are activities that should always occur. And if you can position portfolios to be sort of geared towards the most attractive opportunities available at the time, investors don't have to worry about market timing or shifting. It's happening inside the the portfolio is being constantly reconstituted to the to the most attractive parts, which means that investors, individuals can focus on the long term and their goals and making sure that they're you know they're sticking to their plan, that they're they're you know saving and spending and then uh, focusing on achieving their goals. And we think this is kind of where where most individuals' energies are best are best um, focused. And uh, and so we think uh, definitely it's a great time to be a long term investor and, and saver. Now I'd like to shift to Ryan Murphy. Ryan, as Daniel said, markets have come off the lows that we saw in March, but they've continued to bounce around somewhat since then. And I know you've gotten lots of questions in the last month about understanding people's risk preferences and also about using a risk tolerance questionnaire. One question from an advisor was, should we use risk tolerance questionnaires and how often should we use them? Yeah, we've gotten lots of questions around this in the last months. I'd say just very high-level risk preferences matter. And I think that RTQs can be a very useful tool as part of starting a conversation with a client about volatility and risk. Um, there's lots of different uh, RTQs out there in the market. Some of them are pretty good. There's a lot of good data behind them. Others of them uh, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical about. But I think that in any of these cases, it's a structured way to start a conversation with a client to help them understand what we mean when we say risk because many people hear that word and don't really have a good idea of what that entails. But it's also worth pointing out that people's risk preferences are part of a much larger plan. They're just one part of the input. And any sort of goal-centric planning takes into account lots of different factors. And this would include required risk, the amount of returns a person should be seeking in their plan to reach their long-term financial goals, their time horizon, which really matters, and their risk preferences are part of that. And so using only the RTQ, risk tolerance questionnaire output, as a primary driver of an asset allocation recommendation, this wouldn't reflect our long-term best thinking. But that's not to say preferences don't matter. So good plans are those that help people get to their goals and also are consistent with what they can actually stomach on the way there. Uh, and so part of that question, too, is how often should we be doing this? And I think the answer is often. And it's especially important to be doing this when it's not top of mind for people. So we're coming off of a very long stretch in which markets have been very calm, and that's all the more reason to be talking to people about what markets can be like, what risk and volatility look like uh, over long stretches of time. So you'll have younger people who are just in the market now who occasionally ask questions like, you know, what happens if there's a recession? 
an older advisor is not thinking if, if you have a 30 year investment plan, it's not if there'll be a recession, it's how many to get through. So I think it's that kind of longer perspective that's valuable. And that's part of the ongoing conversation. Switching topics slightly here, some advisors recommend using a bucketing approach for clients, especially for retirees. And this usually entails thinking of one part of your portfolio as being invested for the long term, another part in cash for spending over the next couple of years, and then maybe a bucket in the middle that helps transition investments from the growth bucket to that cash bucket. So with that sort of a bucketing approach, do you think advisors should assess different risk levels for each of those buckets? Right. So I, I've gotten that question a couple of times before, and this approach really doesn't make too much sense to me. So my thinking about this is that risk preferences are very much about the client and not about the buckets per se. There's lots of different ways to set up the buckets, but the risk preferences, the risk tolerance is really about what the client can handle writ large. And I think knowing the client and knowing what they can stomach in the long run is really useful when setting up these buckets. Because it's worth noting that the longer term bucket is typically the one that's going to have the most expected volatility uh, because of equity exposure. And as such, if a person or a household can handle the volatility expected from that bucket, then the other buckets would be anticipated to be less risky and those should be easier for them to handle. Um, but I also think it's worth advisors being mindful of talking to their clients about other kinds of risk, not just volatility risk. Uh, there's... Um, well, I mean, coming from the perspective of finance, we have this mean variance optimization lens, and so much of the discussion seems to be filtered through that as risk is volatility. But there's lots of other risks that investors face. Shortfall risk is certainly one, and that's worth being mindful of, talking to clients about what they need to do in the long run to reach their financial goals. And I also think behavioral risk matters as well. And so good advice is holistic and balances between these different sources of risk in a useful way and helps client develop plans that are going to serve their long-term financial goals and are also such that they can stick to in the long run. Continuing on the topic of risk, do you think it's ever appropriate for an advisor to encourage a client to take on more investment risk, say for a client who has a strong financial picture yet is somewhat risk averse? Yes, very much so. So I was getting a question from an advisor who seemed somewhat trepidatious and they were laying out this particular case that they had. So they had a client who was in her late 20s, uh, and she was in you know, she had a really good job, good income, very stable, no debt, and she took an RTQ, and she turned out to get a really, really low score on it, indicating that she was very, very risk intolerant. And the advisor was struggling with this because if the advisor had used just that piece of data to map this person to an asset allocation, they'd be in a very conservative portfolio. Uh, and this is a person who's got a 40-year time horizon before she's you know, long-term financial goals would come to fruition. And so if that were to be the case, you'd be developing a portfolio that fits these sorts of feelings. Uh, and that would be a very nice, smooth ride to disappointment. And so I think it's incumbent on advisors in these situations to, to push back a little bit and challenge and help their clients understand what this entails. I think the RTQ can provide a starting point for discussion, a structured discussion about risk, but it's also a chance to teach and guide a person to understand the trade-offs uh, that are inherent in investing. And in these cases where you have someone who has such a long time horizon, it really makes sense for them to be much more invested in things that give them much higher returns to get them where they want to go. We talked about risk tolerance depending greatly on a concept we refer to as loss aversion, which is an emotional reaction that we can all feel very strongly. Can an advisor coach a client not to have this emotion? And, and should they? 
I, I think that's really uphill. I think there's ways in which we can help clients be more aware of this idea of loss aversion, which is that the hypersensitivity to downsides uh, compared to, to upsides. But I, I think that people, this is pretty strongly hardwired and there's no magic wand that we have that can just make clients feel things differently. There were efforts early on in research psychology that come out of a tradition called debiasing. The thinking being, can we teach people not to have these kinds of tendencies, uh, which may be a bit irrational. And that was largely unsuccessful. So what I think is much more useful than trying to educate people to be perfectly rational is to start to think about ways in which we can reframe information and help nudge people's attention to focus on things that help them make better long-term decisions. So one example I've highlighted before is the portfolio performance report. So if a person clicks on a website to see how their portfolio is performing, they may be read, they may be met with a lot of red ink and other information that's not all that helpful. One of the first numbers that's often shown to people is what the market did that day. Here's what the Dow Jones Industrial did today. And that to me is, is not what people should be focused on, especially as long-term investors. And also many of these, these websites cut up a portfolio's performance into the different constituent parts and show what the returns were for the, a day. And again, this, this, this drives me crazy because that's just not a good way to represent the information. We're a long-term investment shop and we're trying to encourage people to take a long-term view of what investing is about. And so what the market did yesterday really is impertinent to what they need to do as an investor over the next 30 years to get to their goals. So I don't think that we can just make people immune from loss aversion, but we have the opportunity to redirect people's attention. And by focusing people on their long-term goals, by focusing them on the things they do have control over and contributions and savings is one of the biggest drivers of investor success. And it's worth reminding people of that. Continue to invest, continue to save and take a long-term perspective with a portfolio and a plan geared towards your goals. And that, I think, helps people not fall to the, the kinds of pitfalls we see that loss aversion and under choice biases can lead people into. And that's our episode today. Thanks to Daniel Needham and Ryan Murphy. And thank you for listening. For Simple But Not Easy, I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.